My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. Hello. Today, we're going to do something slightly different on Bridges to the Future. Over the past few years, the RSA has been developing, testing, refining an approach called Living Change. You can read about it on our website. We've worked with communities from Barking to Plymouth to Rochdale to Fife to Belfast, a range of civil society groups, with public organisations in the NHS, central and local government, and businesses in tech, social innovation, the life sciences and retail. And of course, we've been working with our amazing RSA fellows. We've been helping people think like a system by seeing the whole picture and develop scenarios for transformation at the same time as acting like an entrepreneur, spotting and testing opportunities for scalable impact. It's become a powerful and influential approach designed to help unlock impact and to confront the major challenges of our time. So for this episode, I'm handing over the RSA podcast reins to my colleagues, Anthony Painter and Joanna Chukir. Today, They will reflect on 2020, a year of pandemic, and where we go next, all the time weaving through their discussion the living change approach. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it, and I'll look forward to talking to you again on the next Bridges to the Future podcast. Hello and welcome to a slightly different Bridges to the Future podcast. I'm Anthony Painter and I lead the RSA's programs of research, policy, innovation and various other things, looking at the future of work, economic insecurity, sustainability and so many other things as well. And I'm here with Joe Chuk here. Hi, so I'm Director of Design and Innovation at the RSA. I started about a month ago. I describe myself as a social designer, entrepreneur and an academic. And for the last 10 years, I've been leading and growing a pioneering service design agency for health and well-being onto acquisition by FutureGov, where I directed the health portfolio. I'm also a researcher and associate lecturer at a number of UK universities. Wow, formidable portfolio. So hopefully we'll have something vaguely sensible to say about very challenging times. I mean, the reason we're doing this differently is because recently we sort of launched our living change model, as we're calling it. And it's something we've been, as an organisation, developing, testing refining over time. It's an approach to change, basically. So it basically involves identifying possible and desirable futures, understanding pathways towards those futures, although we're not really into sort of prediction and super forecasting, fashionable though they are at the moment. We try to understand the whole context we're in, see the whole system, as we call it, and spot where there's energy for change, new ideas that people are developing, new interventions, things that can improve our world and have the potential to make a bigger difference. So we hope this sort of living change approach is useful 
It helps organizations, citizens, policymakers, practitioners think through how we can search for effective change. And in this podcast, we're going to explore where we've been as a society, where we are, and where and how we might face the future. So just a narrow agenda to cover there in about 30 minutes or so. We'll be asking the key question, are we overwhelmed by complex systems of money, power, ecology, and technology? And how can we step forward? But you know what? Let's start on an uplifting note. Joe, what have you done, seen, read, experienced that fills you with some hope and optimism this week? I like starting on an optimistic note. I suppose what I found really uplifting was just how people were finding creative ways to thrive and to sort of still enjoy life, even though we're facing a second lockdown. So from virtual birthday parties that my son has been attending and absolutely enjoying the virtual entertainers, over Zoom to just how people have been embracing the great outdoors and all kinds of weather and just spending more time with nature. That's good. But what were the entertainers? So it was a themed birthday party with a princess, Princess Ariana, who took the children through a number of like wonderful games, lots of dancing, treasure hunts around the house. It was absolutely, yeah, wonderful, very imaginative. I think it's the future of birthday parties. <laughs> Sounds like that's the sort of thing the parents would enjoy as much as the kids. A friend of mine <laughs> set up a sort of virtual Santa Claus for Christmas and you can basically pay for him to come on a Zoom call with the kids. So we'll see how that works, but it looks good as an idea anyway. <laughs> I'm signing up to that. <laughs> sure, I'll send you the details. So, I mean, I think for me, there's a couple of things that fill me a bit of hope and optimism. And you know, as we're thinking of future and change, you've got to have a bit of hope and optimism if you're going to get anywhere. But one, I've started reading Rutger Bregman's Humankind. And obviously, it's a book that's received a lot of attention. But essentially, it points to the more benign, cooperative parts of human nature. And you know, when you understand humanity as a social species, then of course, it's only natural that we're going to be natural cooperators. So Rutger really sort of gets under the skin of that. And I read a piece in the New York Times just yesterday by a journalist called Donald McNeil, which is headlined actually, A Dose of Optimism. He's a pandemic and health reporter, but he points actually in terms of treatments and vaccines, the medical community is making enormous advances as it responds to COVID. Obviously, we've heard about Rendisavar, dexamethasone, sort of antibody treatments, and the vaccines are continuing at pace. And he's optimistic that we, and he's not a born optimist, as he says, but he's optimistic we'll start to get through the pandemic by next summer. That seems a long time away, but at least there might be some light at the end of the tunnel. Let's hope he's right. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's sort of these sort of nuggets of literature and writings and thoughts and ideas that are so essential to helping us get through this. We need hope so we can sort of come together around this in the best way possible. But I guess sort of reflecting back on where we were at the beginning of 2020, where were we as a society? Gosh, it seems a long time ago already, doesn't it, really? One of the other things I did this week is actually I went to the pub on Saturday. I hate to confess, a very COVID-secure pub. But I took a photo of my little one, and it was the same pub we'd been into towards the end of February. And to see how much he changed just made me realize how much time has passed in the last six months and what we've been through. And, you know, before COVID was upon us or was just sort of starting to flicker into the news bulletins in January, I think still as a society, you know, we're facing enormous sort of challenges, this sense of being overwhelmed in many ways, a deep sense of anxiety. I think over the years, you know, we're experiencing living in an ever more complex world and we struggle with that. The sort of German philosopher Jürgen Habermas has this great concept 
of the life world as it relates to big systems. And the life world is where we find family, friends, community, neighborhood, the things with culture, arts, the things we sort of cherish and hold dear that are personal to us that are about our relationships. And then the big systems of sort of money and power that are out there. But I think people have been feeling a sense of deepened economic insecurity. Power seems distant and a bit more unpredictable in many ways. We're feeling more polarized. Our relationship with ecology is a fraught one. And, you know, it's not an impingement so much on us as us affecting the natural environment. Of course, COVID itself may well have come out of our engagement with the natural environment in many different ways. And then there's the whole sort of technological space, which feels like it's ever more impacting on our lives. We can't escape from it. And rather than us managing technology, we often feel managed um, by it. So I guess we have big challenges going into 2020. And we felt a sense of this being sort of anxious and overwhelmed before the pandemic was here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, COVID-19 has really sort of brought forward the interdependencies between sort of the pandemic and all the other issues we're grappling with that have sort of been coming through over the years. But sort of COVID has been in a way the urgent and quite sudden crisis to surface all of these issues in a much more prominent way. But I think that, you know, the irony of it or the paradox of it is that for the last 20 years, we've been using the year 2020 as this marker in the sand for, you know, for visioning what a better future should look like. And then 2020 arrives and it sort of punches us in the face. And it's, you know, it's absolutely astounding, but it really brings to bear the importance of thinking about long-termism, that it's not enough to sort of vision about the future. We need to make sure that we are thinking in practical and in actionable ways about what we are doing now to make that future happen. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, when you think about 2020, I guess it works so well because it was obviously a round number, but also you have the whole 2020 vision thing, right? Everyone was all about their 2020 vision of whatever it may be. And of course, as we've gone through 2020, rather than sort of crystal clear clarity, we've sort of been wading through ever murkier fog with the odd bright spot, but pretty much it's been tough going. And of course, we're now heading into a sort of second wave. And I, I think, look, you know, I think we started off this podcast with a note of hope and optimism, which I think you know, needed. But I think we've got to be sensitive to the fact that we're all feeling, you know, a sense of frustration. In the UK, at least, we're going back into a second wave, but other European countries, France, Netherlands, so on and so forth, are facing the second wave of this pandemic. I think we're very downbeat. We're frustrated. We miss our loved ones. We miss our old lives in many ways, and it's going to be tough going. And it's we've got to remind ourselves that there is something the other side, but you know we're going to have to pull each other through this a little. But how do you see where we are, Joe, in terms of you know as we're going into this second wave? Yeah, I definitely recognise the challenges and that sort of communal feeling that what we're facing this coming winter is going to be really challenging across the board. And actually, personally, what I can't help but sense is this shift in government narratives between where we started, if you look back at, you know, March 2020 and where we are now, the narratives at the beginning of the pandemic were projecting a lot of confidence. We know what we're doing, reinforcing that the decisions are being data driven, that there is determination across the board to beat this virus, sort of using warlike terminology and vocabulary. Whereas now we're seeing a more humble and vulnerable narrative coming in from government that there's issues with the data, acknowledging that test, track and trace is, is facing a lot of sort of pressure 
that we need to be shifting towards maybe living with the virus rather than beating the virus. And this brings up a lot of questions on whether trust in government might have eroded over time and, and how we respond to that as a society. There's a real risk here of either fatalism, you know, we're being done to, or being driftwood in this sort of sea of events, or taking impulsive responses in a polarised manner to sort of really take things into our own hands. But at the same time, government isn't letting go. I think that's a really good way of putting it. You know, you just think back and, you know, the initial response slow as it was, but once the government machine kicked into action, you know, it was very much an atmosphere of, you know, we know what we're doing. We're the guys with the plan. We've got the solution. Do what we say. Listen to us and we'll get through this. And that's your responsibility. But, you know, we'll march out up front. You follow us and we'll get through to the other side. Government's lost its self-confidence, it seems to me. And, you know, there is a realisation that it's far too messy, complex, ill-determined, unclear um, for that type of sort of, you know, government out front, solution-oriented approach really to work. And, and in fact, we put a blog up on the RSA website with a notion of, you know, maybe the future is government is the first follower rather than always the leader. And, you know, you mentioned track and trace, but, you know, it's a prime example of how this can work differently. So a number of local areas with very experienced directives of public health, experience at managing local outbreaks of different types of diseases have been coming forward to government for months to say, trust us, we know our area, we've got this, we can do it. And instead, government did that sort of solution-oriented, bring in the big company, the big systems, throw £12 billion at the problem, you know, big central war-like machine like militaristic style direction and they've run into the ground i mean we're doing a lot of tests but the system is still not running as effectively as we need it to to dampen down a second wave and get the r rate down well under one and it's a prime example of where you know government failed to listen to respond to innovation to respond to a range of ideas and try to do it, it, it itself and it's really come a cropper and i just wonder whether in the process of this we as a sort of political society can learn ways of doing things differently. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can see how a lot of businesses, particularly 21st century businesses with 21st century business models have responded to this crisis, explored the opportunity within the crisis, particularly purpose-driven businesses that have sort of come in to plug the gap that government has left, but also recognising and just sort of being really realistic here that there are other businesses out there that are potentially less purpose-driven that have used this as an opportunity to monopolise the market. Who could you possibly have in mind without maybe names? I don't think it's a hard I'd guess it's, it's the Amazons of the world. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, and I just wonder whether actually in this process of going through the pandemic, there's some innovations that have taken place which might really stick and change things. I mean, you mentioned business world, but in public services and the response of community as well. There is a sense that in some ways, in some places, it's that there's less of sort of you come to us and more, you know, we'll come to you in the best responses to the pandemic. You know, the obvious example is sort of GP services, which for years have resisted being more accessible. You know, you come to us, you get on the phone line, you 
you wait for, well, certainly in the big cities anyway, you know, you wait for half an hour, you then get your slot and then you have to go and sit in the waiting room and then you get to see your GP and so on. The whole process of having a simple GP visit can take up half a day of your time. Well, that's changed now, of course. They'll come to you. And one, we wonder why we haven't done it this way before. But two, I think we have actually seen some innovations that we'd want to grab hold of, which is part of how we think about change, spotting the innovations. What do you want to keep hold of and drag forward? Yeah, I mean, the whole sort of old world of primary care frustrates me so much because I've worked in that sector for 10 years. And at least for the last five years of that, we've been talking about digital first primary care and digital first urgent care and the number of recommendations as part of national programs I've been involved in developing and shaping. But the challenge has always been that, you know, this is too hard to do. And then 23rd of March, 2020, lockdown happens within a week you have digital first primary and urgent care it's fascinating and we absolutely don't want to go back to how things were on you know on a lot of fronts so i guess sort of moving on from there we've talked about government we've talked about what this means in relation to sort of public services and businesses what have we learned about ourselves as individuals through this yeah a lot a lot i think we've learned about our vulnerability that's a universal experience pretty universal experience over the past few months it's not the same intensity of experience for all obviously there are those who are disadvantaged in different ways who are excluded who face you know long term health challenges and so on who obviously are more vulnerable than all but we've all had some experience of vulnerability i was listening to something the other day it was a food and drinks business that was being interviewed in sonoma county in california and the business owner was saying look this has been a really tough time for us obviously our business is down but there's something else that's been going on as well he said you know in the factory where we're working we can't breathe next to each other anymore because of fear of covid and he said outside because of wildfires we can't breathe the air either and I'm worried about my family. I'm worried about their houses being burnt down. I'm worried about my kids and getting asthma. He said, we can't breathe air anywhere anymore. And I have to say, in a very dark way, it got me thinking about the sort of, you know, the I can't breathe, Black Lives Matter dynamic as well. And none of these things are the same thing. And none of them are, you know, you can't say, you know, that they're all the same degree of intensity. But what is universal about it is I think we're all feeling a sense of vulnerability. That's a business owner who has a very strong business business and suddenly is feeling that fragility that comes you know, from our relationship with nature and pandemic. But also we look at the Black Lives Matter movement, the relationship with power and government and authority. So I think we're becoming hyper aware of these big systems and their impact on our life worlds, no matter who we are even if there is an inequality of vulnerability. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's something that really resonates here in terms of sort of the compounding nature of these issues, the layering of these issues and the interdependencies between them. And I personally think that it's sort of encouraging us to reassess our value system. What are the things that we value? What are the things that we want to invest in changing? And obviously, we've sort of been talking a lot about the value of spending more time with family, with home grounding around home with nature, with our connection to, to place, actually. We've seen sort of cities transitioning to clusters of small towns and sort of people staying within their neighbourhoods, although they are, you know, living in some of the biggest cities in the world and people choosing to pack up and move closer to where home is. I get a sense that this experience is pushing us to be more hyper-local with our physical interactions and then also more hyper-global with our digital 
digital interactions. Yeah, I think that's an interesting sort of juxtaposition of the hyper global and hyper local. I guess if I was to play devil's advocate, I guess the counter argument to that is actually this is just a temporary thing. And it's not so much the mindset. Yes, of course, you know, some people have left sort of inner city environments, particularly if they have, you know, cramped living conditions that have access to the outside space that they need. And that's where there'll be some movement. But actually, it's a temporary thing during the pandemic. And actually, once the restrictions lift, once the pandemic starts to dissipate, then we'll pretty quickly recoil to the way we were before. Now, of course, you know, we might one day a week fewer in the office as commute a bit less and so on. But actually, fundamentally, we like what's in our old lives and we miss them. And as soon as we can, we'll just reach back for that as quickly as we possibly could do so. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say that. I feel that there are obviously polar views on this. You know, people talking about crisis and disaster and silver lining in the same sentence. But you're right, you know, there are very few people who are looking at the situation as the ideal status quo that they want to shift into on all fronts. I think there are some things that we'll take from this and change in the long term. And there are, you know, obviously some things that we will not return to, but surely there will be things that will bounce back as soon as we get a sense of that old normal again. Yeah, I think that's right. And we have a sense of agency in this. You know, it's up to us to think things differently. We've seen things and how they can be different. And I think, you know, going forward, none of us will want to continue the sort of pandemic world or even the majority elements of it. But we probably don't really want to go back to our old worlds just as they were either. I think you're right. Something you said earlier on about how we've learned to appreciate and value those things that are close to us, important to us and so on. I think we'll feel more protective of that going forward. But that means we'll have to rethink our relationship, again, going back to these big systems, how we relate to democratic systems and power systems, how we relate to economic security and the economic system, how we relate to the environment, and also how our relationship with technology. We're going to have to think through all those things in a bit more detail. And that requires all of us, I think, to step into a different space, imagine different, but also start to define what that different can be and feel our way towards it if we are going to protect our life world as we move beyond the pandemic. And how do you think we can begin to do that, Joe? What are the steps that we can take? So I'll put on my design and innovation hat on and I feel quite optimistic, you know, thinking about sort of innovators and change makers, change agents in that space, that this is really the perfect opportunity to embrace ambiguity, to sit comfortably with our discomfort and to see uncertainty as an opportunity for innovation, for making things better for our future. And I know that sort of a lot of people who work in that innovation change making space embrace that type of environment and these conditions. And actually, this is exactly what our living change approach at the RSA embodies. It's been an approach that we've been evolving and developing over the last few years. And this current climate has demonstrated its absolute relevance to address some of these challenges that we're we're grappling with. So the living change approach is all about working collaboratively across different parts of the system. So recognising with humility that a single person, a single player, a single solution will not be enough and that we need to work across the system, but also across disciplines and different areas of expertise to think systematically about what the challenges we are facing are. So understanding the what is of a particular problem or challenge and then acting entrepreneurially to surface opportunities through that challenge, imagining the what if, imagining that possibility for the future and working towards it. 
I think you're right. I don't think the authority-driven, solution-focused approach is going to work. As we've already discussed, you know, the government's approach and mindset in the early part of the year was very much in that terrain. And I think very quickly it, it ran its course with all the problems attendant to that. I mean, the challenges we're facing, not just in the pandemic, but the other things that we've been talking about are too big, too complex. They rely on us thinking in new ways, as you said. It also relies us to think about the way we've been living our lives. You know, our old lives were good in so many ways, but I just get a sense that they've burdened us and burdened disadvantaged most particularly. But the burden on the natural world was also far too great. And there aren't easy answers, but I think, you know, we need to sort of move into a sort of democracy of honesty and you described it as living with ambiguity. We've got to try different things. We've got to think about ourselves. I think you're right about the sort of, uh, it's about our mindsets, how we think about ourselves in the world. We've got to accept our vulnerability in some respects, but we've also got to have a sense of we can make things different. We can find a way, but it's not just going to be through the easy answers. So if we can have a more honest approach, we might be able to start to collectively find a way forward, or at least that's a very hopeful perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. I suppose what I find challenging in this space is that, you know, if we are talking about working collaboratively and collectively in a systemic way to look at opportunities for innovation and for experimentation, we all need to have sort of a shared, I suppose, goal or vision around where we're heading sort of through that movement of change. But aren't we too polarised now to be able to come together around that? Yeah, I mean, all we've seen in the sort of social media space, our politics, recent elections in the UK, obviously the Brexit referendum, what happened in the US, you know, but we see enormous sort of political polarisation. I guess the optimistic view that we can come together might be seen to be sort of naively optimistic. But do you know what? I wonder whether the experience of COVID is starting to sink in a bit. You know, you look at what seems to be happening in the US. Trump was always great at politics, bizarrely but not great at governance. But I think what seems to have happened during the course of COVID is that I think the American people may be starting to realise that you can't separate politics and governance. They go together. And if you have a particular political style, a populist style, as it's been described, you know, that the strong man, the celebrity leader who's willing to crash through countervailing institutions, who wants to speak directly to the people and channel their innermost emotions and desires, that political style has some appeal, even though we may, may question why. But as a governance model, it's failed spectacularly. And there's signs now that's starting to seep through into support. Now, of course, you know, four years ago, everyone was talking about Hillary Clinton, how she was on the verge of victory. So we don't want to make too many presumptions in this context. But I think we might be starting to see a questioning of whether particular political approaches can actually govern in the public good. So maybe that may start to open a conversation around a different way of approaching things. We'll see. I'm not sure technocracy is a better way where you have detailed policy experts who will make the decisions for us is the right approach as an alternative, which is governance heavy as opposed to politics heavy. But you know, you look at countries like Taiwan and you know you see the sorts of things that they're doing with online democracy, deliberation and so on. And what's really interesting about that, what they're trying to get to is a situation where people can consent to things rather than everyone agrees with everything or there is a perfect consensus they are trying to get to a point where people consent so actually there's enough 
cooperation to move forward as a society and maybe there's a lesson in that for us yeah i mean i think it's absolutely fascinating to see how taiwan has been dealing with this and really convening all different parts of society around this challenge and i really sort of take heart in sort of your thoughts around sort of that political shift i guess my concern is can we afford to wait for politics to support us to find that sort of common ground. My personal view is that there is ongoing urgency around the issues that we're facing day to day. And I feel that we really need to think about how we come together as a community and a movement for change. We need to obviously recognize that we have different ideologies and values and priorities and that there will be things that we need to let go of. And, you know, there will be things that we want to hold on to. But what is that common ground? How can we focus on that common ground rather than our differences to bring us together to work proactively in that space? I think also really important important here is to recognize that there is individual and collective agency that we all need to be thinking about our personal role in this whether as individuals or as organizations or communities or businesses what is our sense of agency to proactively respond to all these things that are overwhelming us rather than sort of sitting back watching back and expecting others to come and fix these things for us. See, I think you're hitting on exactly how we think about change and how we want to discuss change here. And, that, and that's, you know, taking steps forward, even though they might be tentative, but also imagining a different future. And I wonder actually whether the type of conversation we need to have, the David Attenborough style of conversation, if you like, is to think about the future a little more, to discuss the future. Anyway. What do we really want for our kids? Do we want the world that we had created? with its attendant insecurity, environmental degradation, distorted democracy, sense of distraction. Is that the future we want for our kids? And I don't think actually, whatever our political perspectives, our interests, our values, I don't think many people want that future. And I think if we talk about it in those ways, if we're future focused and thinking, then it might help us to take some of the first steps towards doing something differently, because I think that might be you know, a driving energy for change. So I guess, you know, think about the future, think about how we might want it to be different, discuss that difference, and then take action that we can today to move towards that. And then we might be able to reach to that better future. Absolutely. That's a really good point to end on. Wow. I think we've come to the end of our chat, Joe, and God, we covered a lot of ground there. Far too much, some people might say. And they'll say, what about the detail? Where are the answers? But hopefully we've got people thinking and if we've got a few people thinking, I think we've probably done our job. What's the one thing you would say to people? If someone said, what do I do now? That's all well and good. This is, you know, big thinking, rhetoric, so on. But what can I actually do? What would you say to them, Joe? I would say think about the individual role that you play in this. Think about one action you can take to shift that sort of future to be more positive, even if that's in a small way. So think about the role that you play and where you are in the system, in society, and something that you can do to change things, whether that's in your home, through your work, with organisations you have influence on, if you're in politics, you know, across the policymaking space, but take an active role in the change. So what I think I would say to people is, ask yourself the question, if 8 billion people live the way of life that I'm living now, will that be good for my kids? Will that be good for my grandkids? 
is that ultimately sustainable? That's what I would say. Ask yourself the question and, and just have that bit of reflective honesty. And we'll all duck that question very easily, but maybe we just need the discipline to ask ourselves that question over and over again. Of course, there's far more about the living change model and all our sort of programs of work on the RSA website. Take a look, engage in the conversation, get on social media, share it with others, get in contact with us. We'd love to hear your thoughts and hopefully you've enjoyed hearing about the living change model this afternoon and we'll see you very soon in the podcast series. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.